today we're closing chapter 15. We're closing on the resurrection. To, get, to make room for Christmas, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to end our great study of the resurrection of Christ today. I mean, we, we should be coming back to it pl- plenty in different times and ways, in verses and in song. But our specific focus on this chapter and this uh, proclamation of the resurrection of Christ and all it means for us, we'll, we'll be closing today. And we're going to close by looking at the second half of the, the main application of this whole chapter. Paul spends 57 chapters proclaiming the resurrection and all its implications, and he spends one verse at the end. He spends one verse at the end to call us to application. There are a couple other places where there's application, but this chapter really is mostly truth. 57 or so verses of mostly truth, and then at the end, this crescendo saying, because of all this truth, be this, do this, think this. And so, um, it, it's okay that we're spending two sermons on one verse after spending a few weeks on 57 because this is a crescendo and we're meant to pay attention to it. So this is the verse. It's 1 Corinthians 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, as I've said to you, that's a generic in the Greek, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And as you know, last week, if you were here, and if you weren't here, please, please, if you, if you can take a listen, uh, we, we really tried to squeeze the sponge out of that word, therefore. This idea of the grand principle of the Christian life, that all our Christian life and all of our walk is supposed to flow from the therefores of scripture. The, because of this, of God's precious truths, this is how we live. We live out of faith. We live out of truth. We don't live mindlessly. All of life is to be lived out of the therefores, the because of this. Today, I want to steep deeper into the end of the verse. After the therefore, after calling us to be steadfast and immovable in the gospel and the hope of our resurrection, it's in light of that hope that Paul calls us to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And at the outset, I want to say that the focus of this verse is this phrase, the work of the Lord. Everything in this verse modifies and qualifies and speaks to the work of the Lord. And we need to pay attention to what that means. We, we can rightly assume at the outset that the work of the Lord is in a general sense all of life since all of our lives belong to the Lord. But there is more to say on the work of the Lord, what that is later. But for the sake of the tempo of this verse and this message, I want to sequentially go through word by word, phrase by phrase through the verse. So we'll start with always abounding. Always abounding. What does Paul mean by always abounding? Always abounding. When I was a teenager, when I was Logan's age, is Logan here? Here he is. Yeah, when I was your age, sorry to single you out. I remember going to church with my parents most Sundays. I went to St. Bernadette's on Backlick Road in Springfield, Virginia. And, And I knew some of the young people who were there. I had seen them at high school during the week and on the weekend. I knew some of them honestly, as hurtful 
and cruel people, making fun of other students who weren't as cool as them. I knew them as people who walked in sexual immorality, and I'm pretty sure that some of them bragged about it to their buddies. And I knew these people as those who loved to get wasted and maybe high on Saturday night at parties before heading to Mass to take Holy Communion. I knew all this because I was at those parties too. I knew all this because in little and big ways, I was just like them. I lived for me all week long, and then on Sunday, the two hours or so during Mass and getting there and coming home, that was the time for God, for church, for kneeling, for praying, to take communion. It was the time for holy things. But Saturday night and every other time was the time for me, time for me to worry and work on school, time for me to fret about and long for girls, time for me to have awful fights with my sister and negotiate with my parents, time for me to cheat on school and live for parties on the weekend. And all of that, whether good or bad, was something I did without dedication or dependence on God. There were plenty of good things I did during the week. Homework and time with my family. Practicing with my band. But none of it had a reference to God. None of it was oriented around God. That was Sunday morning for those two hours. Everything else was me, my life, my world, separated from him. And coming to Christ as a 20-year-old meant a radical realization that God never meant there to be a compartmentalization between he and I. We were one now. Always. We were one. Always. We were to share everything. Always. He shared his love with me. Always. He shared his spirit and his life with me, always. He shared his son with me, always. His business was always to be about caring for me, loving me, sustaining me, interceding for me, always. And therefore, my life was to be always his. In Romans 14, Paul says, none of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. God came to repair something that is so fundamentally broken, we can barely see it because of how broken we are. We are to be always with the Lord. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There's no crevice of our lives. There's no YouTube clip. There's no driving lane on Route 40. (laughs) There's no attitude with the grocer at Food Lion. There's no tax form or business billing form. There's no Netflix show or movie selection. There's no disagreement with our wife or our child that's meant to be divorced from our union with Christ. We are to be always with him, for him. 
And so in this word always abounding, in this phrase always abounding, is the thought of constancy, of dedication and devotion. In Christ, the secular of your warehouse job and the secular of your banter with your co-workers is just as holy as you're singing this morning. Always, always abounding. But the thought here is not just always, it's always abounding. And in this word abounding, it speaks of exceeding the ordinary. It's an overflow above the usual measure. There's to be a fullness, a fruitfulness, an abundance. This is not a half-heartedness, but a wholeheartedness about our lives for the Lord. Nobody would think I was abounding with my wife if on our anniversary I drove to the Best Buy parking lot and pulled out some 7-Eleven taquitos and said, Jen, happy anniversary, eat up. There it is, Luke, the taquitos. I know you love taquitos. Don't ever do that to Maddie. Even less of a straw man, we could have a date night at Chipotle's. It's a little bit better. It would do the job of feeding us. Big step up from taquitos. I could say happy anniversary and smile. I could say I paid heed to her anniversary. Jen loves Chipotle's. But nobody would say I abounded in my anniversary. And when I step back and I think of who Jen is and what she means to me, how she is a means of incredible grace and patience and love and work in my life, I think she deserves an abounding kind of anniversary. She deserves flowers, her favorite meal out, expensive, a, a, a gift card, a gift. And I think this phrase, always abounding in this context, it has that similar expectation that because of who God is, because of what he's worthy, we would serve him with a large heart, with an exceeding heart, with a, a, with a straining heart. And not only because of who he is and what he deserves, but the great news as we, as we move along this verse, because of who he is as our helper to serve him because of the resources of his grace that are available to us as we seek to live for him. But man, as I, as I prepared this morning, I just felt, <laughs> you know, I've, I've talked to you guys about, I'm kind of given to melancholy. I'm given to easy discouragement. I wake up like John Piper says, and I just feel like Satan is right there, you know, just ah, grabbing my heart. And I just felt such a need to hear this, always abounding, always abounding. It doesn't mean that we don't groan. It doesn't mean that we pretend all of life is happy and perfect. It doesn't mean that we don't mourn or suffer. In this world, we will have trouble. And God doesn't expect us to pretend that we won't have trouble. He doesn't say rejoice with those who mourn. He says mourn with those who mourn because that's his heart too. He mourns with those who mourn. But there's never to be this flag of surrender this life of Eeyore. Remember Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? Just always down, always expecting the worst, always looking for the other shoe to drop, always ready for the hammer to fall. I can tell you, I've spent too many minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years in that frame of mind 
the other shoe is going to drop, the hammer is going to fall, as opposed to expecting God to be merciful, expecting him to be gracious, expecting him to be compassionate. That's what fuels moving forward. That's what fuels abounding, is this expectation that God is here and he's loving and he's kind and he's going to help. So there's to be this wholehearted abundance that's appropriate for all God is and all he is for us in Christ. Next phrase, always abounding, and here we are, in the work of the Lord, the work of the Lord. We are to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. So this begs the question, what is the work of the Lord? And like I said, on one hand, we know all of life belongs to God. But I think we can zoom in closer on this phrase and sharpen our understanding. What is the work of the Lord? In John 6, Jesus introduces the work this way. Do not work for the food that perishes. He's talking about bread on that day when he fed thousands in the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the work of God that we would believe on him who he has sent. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Here, Jesus defines work for the crowds as believing on him for salvation. And then he explains that this work is the work that he came to create in fallen men and women and to sustain in fallen men and women even to the end that he would raise them up on the last day. That's why he came. That's the work he came to do and that's the work he came to create in you. He came to create saving faith in you that lasts. When Matthew, the tax collector, comes to Christ, Jesus rejoices that his work is being accomplished in Matthew's faith. He says, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. And then he says, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the work of Jesus, to seek and to save the lost. Jesus' life work was to live and to die so that men and women would have a savior to trust in and in trusting that savior, they would be born anew 
They would find new life, and that life would last forever. So Jesus' work was to create in us, above all things, belief in him. Belief that lasts. That was his work. Now, I I know we talk about faith versus works, and that can get confusing. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that our work in the Lord, our labor in the Lord, this work in the Lord that Paul's talking about here, is to join Jesus in his life mission. To rescue souls from judgment and from hell that is coming upon the world. To join him in his work to create and to sustain in those souls saving and transforming and lasting faith. All of Jesus' life was devoted to the rescuing and the preserving of souls. To the end, this was his work. And brothers and sisters, it's our work. This is as clear as day in the Great Commission. Jesus came and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus is the boss with all the power and all the resources and all the grace and all the strength. And then he says, now here's what I want you to do for me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all I have commanded. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I give myself, I give my grace, I give my authority to this end in your life, to converting and maturing disciples. In the Great Commission, we see the totality of all of Jesus' work passed on to us. This is his plan, that throughout his time in heaven, waiting until he returns, through us, unbelievers would be converted and baptized, and they would be made into believers who are not left alone, who are not abandoned, who are not isolated, but those believers would be discipled and taught and matured and cared for. This is the work we have been given, the saving and the maturing and the preserving of souls. This is our work. God saves and God grows and God preserves, and we're to join him in his work The work when he said, this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes on him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So there is of course the conversion, the bringing in, right, to Christ. But but I hope you see in this, there's, there's so much more. Jesus didn't say, go and make decisions. He said, make disciples. Teach them. That's what we're to be about. That's what the church exists, to mature and preserve each other in Christ. Yes, to evangelize, but the evangelized are not abandoned. They're matured, they're cared for, they're preserved to the last day. Jesus wants disciples that last. And so your job and my job is to help each other last as well as offer his gospel to those who don't want him yet and don't know him yet. 
That's the work. To save and to grow and to preserve souls. That's Jesus' passion. And that needs to be our passion. Yes, with the lost around you. But I think when we think of the Great Commission, we, we almost always think of evangelism. That's where it starts and that's where it ends. That's not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is the whole Christian life. The introducing, the saving, and the preserving, the nourishment, the growth, the maturing, the protecting of souls. Souls in this room. Look around you, brothers and sisters. Just take a look. Just take a moment to just look around you. I know it's awkward and weird, but just do it. This is your labor field. Folks online, look at the names online. It's your labor field. This is the work of God. To mature these disciples, to teach them about Jesus. This is why we're a church. And we're not just an evangelism booth. And God, that we would have more evangelism booths. But this answers some of the questions, which is why when we open up Paul and Peter, and why don't we just see, go out and win the lost, go out and win the lost, go out and win the lost. These apostles who were going out everywhere to win the lost, what are they doing? They're preserving the saved. They're maturing the disciples. They're discipling believers. That's what your job is. That's what my job is. And of course, we all do this in different ways to further that work, to support that work. It may not be directly, for, most, for many of us, for most of us, it's not directly doing that specific work full time. But, but you do it wherever you are. This is why we give to churches with our tithes, with our offerings. This is why you support ministers and pastors. It is in the Bible. We're going to talk about it more in the new year. But, but this is why you give to missions and missionaries and ministries like Gospel Haiti or Compassion International. This is one of the ways that a full-time secular job that you might have becomes ministry. It becomes a means of sustaining the work of gospel ministry that's explicit. You, in a sense, provide for me so that I can stand up here and call you to do the work <laughs> and hopefully help you to do the work. But there are other crucial ways. Secular work is holy in that it contributes to the preservation, for example, of our nation so that believers can mature in a peaceful society and unbelievers can hear the gospel in a free society. Jobs and economies that are good are good. And you going to work and supporting the business you serve and paying your taxes, it's all good. I mean, it's all imperfect, right? It's all imperfect. And we have elections and we yell about it and we argue about it. But the big picture is good. God cares about peace and order. He wants the gospel to go out. He wants us to live peaceful and orderly lives. It says so in 1 Timothy 2. So that people can hear the gospel. Not so that the church is shut down. He wants freedom of religion. He, he wants those things. And so when you vote and when you work hard and when you pay your taxes, you're holding a society he created where that's still free. But secular work is, is most crucial and holy also in that it provides a testimony and that you provide a testimony. As Cameron came up and hit us with this morning, which just was so encouraging, we are called wherever we are to work hard and to work well 
so that wherever we are, people will see our integrity. They will see our goodness. And they will know that if they know us enough time, they will know that it's all embodied in a person who calls Jesus Lord and Savior. And they are made to wonder about him and ask about him. You're called to be a light. God does more than we will ever know, I believe, this side of eternity when his saints give themselves to living like they belong to a different kingdom even though they work and live and breathe and play in this kingdom. God does more than we will ever know. Every day that you live in the world but not of the, Lord, of the world is a day the Lord may use you in ways hidden from you. I still remember this young boy and girl who lived down the street from me. They were the Averys. And they lived on my street when I was nine or ten. They were weirdos. They would never fight. They would, I mean, they'd never fight with us. I'm sure they had fights in the house, you know, but like they were humans. But, but they never fought and cussed like me and like the other kids around us. We were awful to each other. Fist fights before lunch, flag football or no, tackle football. After lunch, <laughs> fist fights before dinner. Dungeons and Dragons after dinner. I mean, we, we were just mocking, accusing, trashing, bullying. They were not like that. When they were provoked, they would refuse to retaliate in kind. <laughs> These kids, they were like eight, nine, ten years old, they would even tell us they loved us. We would think that was the weirdest thing. But here I am, almost 50 years old, and I've never forgotten that. Deep down in my heart, when I was nine, ten, I knew, I knew that what they had was better. I knew underneath all of my flesh and sin and selfishness, I knew that what they had was right. I knew that I should be like that. I knew that they were safe in a way none of the other kids were. That they were sane in a way I wasn't and none of the other kids were. And it made me wonder. I never forgot. A and I believe over the years, long after them, it was part of the testimony that God was building and creating my heart, that there was another kingdom. There really was another kingdom. There really was another king, and I desperately needed that. And I believe they were part of that, and they will know on the last day. You were part of what I was doing to, to, to win this stupid, foolish, wicked young man just in your refusal to fight, cuss, be bullies, antagonistic, and hateful. This is the Lord's work through us, and, <laughs> and he fulfills his purpose in saving us when he says to us, you are the light of the world. This is what Cameron said to me, this, said to us this morning. That's why it stopped me in my tracks. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light 
to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. But as I've said, we, we don't just witness to the lost, right? It gives light to all who are in the house, not just those who are outside the house. They see the light through the windows. But what about those inside the house? They need to see your light too. Cameron needs to see your light. Hannah needs to see your light. Kim and Mike need to see your light. A massive part of the Great Commission work is one anothering to mature and grow those who are already in the house, those who are already disciples. So every mother and father with every child in whom is the smallest seed of faith, every mother and father who struggle and strive to bring the instruction of the Lord into their child's hearts, who struggle and strive to lovingly discipline their children, every husband and wife in every interaction who seek to turn their mate to Jesus with gentleness and fight for the patience to do it with humility, you are laboring for the Lord. You are at work for him, and he will not forget. Every care group meeting you go to, not for yourself so much as for others, because we often don't want to go to these things, right? But there are people there who need to see your light, and there are people there whose light you need to see. That is the labor that you have been given every discipleship meeting on Tuesdays the DR is every prayer meeting that you go to every Bible study that Donna's hosts it's it's all labor in the Lord it's labor you're called to every support work running soundboards bringing your offering to the church folding clothes at Dorcas it's labor for the Lord it's light in his house that you're called to let others see. And of course, not only in these organized, more formalized ventures, but whenever we're among one another and we're filled with the Holy Spirit, listen, whenever we're just with each other and we're filled with the Holy Spirit, when we're really filled with the Holy Spirit, don't we know that every interaction, every word, has the potential to be a holy moment and a holy thing. And isn't that the best? When you kind of feel the magic of that, that Jesus is here. I'm here to help you see him. Like there's nothing better than that. There's nothing better than that. That's what Holly was talking about that happens on Tuesday nights. It doesn't, there's nothing magical about Tuesday nights. It, it happens over coffee with you know, Sarah came and picked up my daughter last night. They went out and had dinner. Marie and Sarah, she's taking my daughter out. They came home. I said, Marie, did you guys talk about God and boys? She said, yes, we did. <laughs> I just, my heart was just so grateful. I need Sarah talking to my daughter about God and boys. I do. And her face was so bright. I thought, oh my goodness, to be 11 years old and my face lighting up, you know, for me as a boy, to say, I, this older person from the church took me out for bubble tea or whatever and we talked about God and girls. Like, 
It never happened to me. Thank you, Sarah. This is why we exist. Your room, your online list, this is your labor to help each other see him and hold on to him. And surely he says, as you do this, what does he promise? As you give yourself to his labor, what does he promise? I will be with you. On Youth Devos on Wednesday, Kate, I will be with you, he says. And I know I could name everybody probably in this room in, in scope in your world, so I'm not, I just want to encourage you that, that your labor for the Lord is not in vain because he will be with you. And this brings me to my last point, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's not in vain. What does in vain mean? In vain means it's vanity. We think of makeup right? Vanity fair. There's something in there that, that c- connects to it, but, but vain means meaningless here. It means empty. Your work is not meaningless, Paul says. Your work is not empty. It's not a facade. It's not a pretense. This, the devil tries to tell you this is worthless. This is a facade. You don't mean this. This won't go anywhere. It's playing drums on a Sunday. Who cares? It's purposeless. It's stupid. Paul says, if you're doing it for the Lord, It's not meaningless. It's not empty. It's not foolishness. It's not useless. It's not vain. It's not empty. And Paul says you need to know that. He says knowing. This is how you are to labor in the Lord. Knowing. If you don't know it, you're not going to be able to labor abundantly and always. If you think it's in vain. If you're talked into the lie that this is empty and meaningless and pointless and stupid. I was with Matthew. I texted a couple of you guys. I was with Matthew, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago. No, it was last week, I guess. I was trying to share the gospel with him at IHOP over hot chocolate. IHOP will still seat you, even if Starbucks won't. We had this booth by the window and I'm, I've got this little gospel for kids app. It's very good. I'm trying to read through it with him and talk to him about it. And what were his questions? You know, the Lord is king, Matthew. He's king over all. Matthew had a cheese stick with some marinara sauce. Is he king over my spaghetti sauce? I was like, yeah, okay. Continuing to talk about, you know, Satan has tried to do this to us and the Lord is king, he redeems us. Do you know any legends about Satan? <laughs> I mean, it just, it felt empty. You know, it felt useless. It felt foolish. It felt a pretense. But God says, no, it's not. I got home, and Matthew said to mom, Daddy, Daddy, we went and talked about God. We went and talked about God. He was happy. He smiled. <laughs> if that's all I got. God, we talked about God, and he smiled. It's not in vain. And, and it's not in vain because God knows. Even what may be a hard heart on the other side of the conversation, there's another heart above whose heart is soft and tender and compassionate and is grateful for your work. Jesus worked with a lot of people who were hard to him, 
who wouldn't have anything to do with him, who crucified him. Many people who went to hell, who heard his voice and refused. And it was meaningful to God that Jesus reached and tried and cried out and pleaded. It's not in vain, even if God's heart is the only heart that's blessed. But it's not in vain, in, in a more pointed reason I want to close with here. It's not in vain because look at verse 56 and 57 if your Bibles are open. If they're not open, I'll just say it to you. Here's why it's not in vain. Because even though, verse 56, even though the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, it's not in vain because thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus gives the victory, over sin and death, because these twins of futility are overturned and reversed and destroyed by Christ, your labor is not in vain. And we all feel like, yeah, that sounds great, but what the heck am I talking about? Like, how does Jesus' victory over death and sin mean my labor is not in vain? What's that got to do with my labor? And I, I wanna try to close with, with explaining two crucial ways why Jesus' victory over sin and over death means your labor is not in vain. First, his victory over sin. Please try to follow through with me here. This is, I believe this is really important to get and, and I know we're, we're moving towards the end here, but there's a couple of deep dives to take right now. How does Jesus' victory over sin mean your labor for him is not in vain? Listen, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, in this chapter, in, in verse 17, Paul says that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, you are still in your what? Anybody remember? You're still in your sins. I'm so glad you remember that. He says if, if God did not raise Christ from the dead, then he's still dead. And he's dead for his own sins. And if he's dead for his own sins, then yours have not been paid for. And therefore, you are still under God's condemnation for your sins. And Paul's clear implication here is that because Christ has been raised, you are not still in your sins. You are neither under the condemnation for your sin, nor, listen to this, not only are you not under the condemnation for your sin, you are, because of that, also no longer bound. This is important, follow me here. You're no longer bound to further imprisonment to your sins for your rejection of God. This is really important overlooked theology here, and I can't go into great detail, but one of the most tremendously important and poorly understood truths of God is that his wrath against mankind, his wrath in response to our rejection of him his wrath manifests itself in him handing people over to their own sinful hearts. That's weird. That's hard to understand. That's in Romans 1. It's in the Bible. It's in other places implicitly. That God's judgment on us for our rejection of him at the first is that he hands us over to our sinful hearts. He hands us over to sexual morality that we already have that we want. He hands us over to selfishness and, and strife and anger and enmity and rage and pride and greed. Those things that are already in our hearts. As his judgment, he, he doesn't protect us from those. He, he says, fine, you don't want me the only source of goodness? I, then you can have you. 
and I'll hand you over to you. And that does not mean anything good. Apart from Christ, we're not just condemned for our sins. We are justly imprisoned in them for rejecting the only source of freedom from sin. If you don't follow me on this, please come and talk to me because it's, it's really important you understand this. And look through Romans 1 and see it there. It's a great hermeneutical key of scripture, this idea. It's a horrible truth. But it's true. Because we reject God, he doesn't make us reject him. But because we reject him, he hands us over to our own wicked hearts. And do you know what happened when Christ died and rose? He overturned this imprisonment. He reversed it. He broke it. He destroyed it. When he took all of our punishment for our greatest sin, which was our rejection of God, then God no longer imprisons us, hands us over in his justice to all the lesser vile sins that flow from that rejection of God. And this is how this plays out in your life. If you're a Christian, you have experienced again and again and again and again, God will forgive you and clean you for the same sins. That is him not imprisoning you over to those sins anymore. That's him saying, I forgive you. I forgive you again. I forgive you again. Not, I'm handing you over further. I'm handing you over further. Be imprisoned, be imprisoned, be imprisoned. He frees you from the power of sins that you've committed numerous times, again and again and again. Why does he do this? Because Christ has paid for all of them. And Christ has made it so that you no longer have to, by judicial decree, be bound to those sins. But he is free now to continue to rescue you, continue to cleanse you, continue to set free. Formerly, in the past, before Christ, God had a right to allow you to be trapped by your own heart for your rejection of him. But now, our sin provokes his compassion. Of course it provokes his displeasure. Of course it can provoke his discipline. Of course I think it can preserve, provoke even his fatherly, not his judicial, not his I'm a judge over you, but his fatherly frustration and even a loving anger. But where it ends is compassion. It provokes his grace. Where sin abounds, what abounds all the more? Grace. That's sho- that should shock us if we understood it. It should shock us. Why does he do this? Why does he continue to strive with us and work repentance in our hearts? Because Christ has taken away every reason why he shouldn't. And here's what this means for our labor in him. It means that our labor in him is not in vain because sin does not have the right to rule us anymore, to keep us from laboring, to keep us from effective service. Because Jesus has died for our rejection of God, he has freed us from the prison of sin, which was our only destiny for rejecting God. So Paul says, Listen, run, always, go, 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 do it. Give yourself always abundantly to the labor of the Lord 
Because if you do, depending on all that Jesus has done for you, not on yourself, depending on all he is for you, not yourself, you will find that sin is not able to imprison you any longer. It will try. It absolutely will try. It will certainly hassle you and call out to you. It will trip you up at times. But it has no right to domination over you any longer. You are not under law. You are not under its condemning sentence for your sins. You are under grace. And because of that, Paul says in Romans 6.14, sin shall no longer be your master. Because if you were under the law, that is, the, that is if you were under the law's just imprisonment to your sins, you would not be under God's grace. His continual cleansing, his continual forgiveness, his continual mercy. Do you understand this, brothers and sisters? This is crucial to understand. This is how we run abundantly and always. This is how we try without trust in ourselves or without hopelessness. And Paul found this out. This was his own experience. He tells us in this chapter that instead of guilt and condemnation and hopelessness in his running for God, he found empowering grace fueling him, giving him help to fight the good fight. It was a fight. We're not home yet. I'm not talking about holy perfection. I'm not talking about perfect love all the time. I'm talking about a battle we can win and a race we can run. He says, I am the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Then he says this, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. It was not empty. It was not foolish. It was not meaningless. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. But it was not I. But the grace of God that is with me. Paul found a new power at work in him. The Holy Spirit of Jesus. And as he believed and trusted and depended on this great spirit living in him, he ran hard after the Lord. And he found that his running was not in vain. It wasn't meaningless. It wasn't futile. God's grace met him. It met him again and again. It met him against adversaries outside of him. And most importantly, it meant the adversary inside of him. His own old man, sinful fleshly heart. That's still beaten him. And still fought against him. So your labor is not in vain. Because you labor under a God who's committed to give you grace. Not judgment. Even as you stumble and fall, even when you fail, your labor in the Lord, even when it's mediocre at best, when your labor seems beyond your ability to bear it another day, when you look at a day, a week, a month of lethargy, God is still saying, come back, repent. Not, not repent to the law, not repent to your own strength, but repent to my son who loves you and will give you grace to keep going. He calls you to believe that Christ will meet you with forgiveness and mercy as you rededicate yourself to him. He calls you to believe that Christ will meet you with power to walk free. To walk free. Why? Because you're good enough? I mean, don't you know by now? Can't you, are your eyes open enough to your record with God? 
No, it's not because of you. It's because of the worth of the blood of Jesus. His blood is worth his continual cleansing, his continual extended hand, his continually picking you up, his unlimited, unending patience. Jesus' blood is worthy of that response from God. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. May may we hear that. Each morning, may we hear that. I need to hear it afresh each morning. I couldn't handle having Jesus say, I'll say this one time for the rest of your life, get up, pick up your mat and walk. I need to hear it every morning. (laughs) And then lastly, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead and will raise you as well. Your labor is not in vain because Christ has been raised and he will raise you as well. In the backdrop of Paul's heart in this chapter is the resurrection through everything. And this this proclamation that without the resurrection, our lives for Jesus, our labor for Jesus is in vain. Without the resurrection, our work for Jesus is empty and meaningless. All of Paul's hardships and suffering for the gospel, he says, it would all make him a joke. It would make him more pitiable than all people if there's no resurrection. What's his point? Why does he say this? He says this because he's banking all that he has now on this eternal resurrection. He's staking what he could get out of this present life in terms of creature comforts on the fact that God will not lose one track Listen, that God will not lose track of one sacrifice. That God will not lose track of one tear. Not one lash, not one bruise, not one link in any chain that wraps itself around Paul's ankles in a cold prison for the sake of the gospel. God won't lose track of any of it. He's banking on God not losing sight of one prayer he prays for the churches, for Timothy, or for his enemies. God not losing track of one appeal he makes to a straying brother or sister. God not losing track of one encouragement to a despairing or hopeless brother or sister. God not losing track of one attempt at a gentle rebuke awkwardly brought. God not losing track of one sermon, one visit, one groan for your child for love's sake to the Holy Spirit. God is keeping track of all of it. It matters to his heart. Jesus said, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. On the day of our resurrection, we will find that all our labors for the Lord have made some eternal difference And that we, listen to this, this is a scandal. We will find that we, who only deserve condemnation and wrath, will receive a reward instead. The math doesn't add up here. We deserve punishment, but we will receive mercy 
We deserve wrath, but we will receive reward. And listen, the math doesn't, doesn't add up in one more way. The reward, the reward will outmatch the labor. In other words, God won't put your prayers for the saints right here and say, oh, the prayers for the saints equals about this much reward. No, no, no. The reward, it outstrips, it outmatches the labor. Listen to Paul. We're afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our bodies. Why? Why does Paul do all this? Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us along with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Listen to his love for people. It is all for your sake so that as the grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. I, I make that note just to note, Paul's ministry was for God, but to people, for God. That's what all he did was people, caring for people. And then he says this, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction that's what he called imprisonment this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison i can't compare paul says the 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 weight of glory the weight of god's reward and joy in him I can't compare it to my sickness for the church or my suffering for the church, my persecution for the church. It's gonna be like getting a billion dollars for mowing a lawn. It's beyond all compare. He says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Your labors, God sees. They're eternal. They have eternal merit to God, eternal weight. Brothers and sisters, let us give ourselves afresh to the Lord this morning. To his work in caring for our families, caring for our brothers and sisters here in this church, to caring for the lost around us as we have opportunity, our labor will not be in vain. Our reward will be greater than we deserve. Because we have a Father and a Savior and a Spirit that's greater than we can imagine.